Well, we are continuing our studies through 1 Corinthians and everyday discipleship. And I think it's good for us to remind ourselves that this letter was written to a local church who lived in the midst of the Roman Empire. And so just like any church in any time in any place, they had victories, they had defeats. They, it was clear that there were signs of God, his presence, his kingdom at work among them, and also there were glaring inconsistencies and evidences of the deep roots that their former lifestyle and culture held in their lives and community. Remember, it had been reported to Paul by the household of Chloe, friends of Paul and the local church at Corinth, that there were all sorts of issues going on in the church at Corinth. The church experienced social, spiritual, and sexual problems, and it was putting members against one another and the congregation against Paul. And I know that as we have taught through this, it feels like Paul just has this long laundry list of issues, right? Okay, there's another issue with the Corinthian church, another problem. And I know it can feel like that, but all of these are symptoms of a much greater disease. And that is that the Corinthians had failed to understand the real life implications of the gospel, the real life implications of Jesus Christ the Son of God, crucified and risen again. And what that meant for this community, this new humanity. Remember, the community of believers in Corinth, they were not reflecting the values, practices, and culture of the kingdom of God, but they were reflecting the values, mores, and habits of the culture of the day. And so Paul writes to bring them back in line with the way of Jesus and the way of the kingdom of God. There's this quote by Leslie Newbegin that has been really helpful for me in studying 1 Corinthians. And he says this, the choice for the church in every age will always be, will our identity be shaped by scripture or by culture, by the biblical story or the cultural story? Now, in chapter 11, verse 2, Paul turns his attention specifically to the worship gatherings of the Corinthian church. And he will address the varied issues in their gatherings all the way through chapter 14. And so Paul begins this section by commending the Corinthians, as he does even in the beginning of the letter. He commends them. They remember him. They remember the traditions that he passed on to them. But again, there are things that are out of line that need to be pastorally corrected. And I think it's good for us to ask, what is the standard? What's the North Star that Paul wants to give to the church for their gatherings? And it might not be clear in this first section, but I think when we take the whole of chapters 11 through 14, we see that Paul has in mind what's called the proleptic vision. Proleptic is a grammatical term in which a future event is so sure, so certain to be the case that it's spoken of in the present tense. You ever have the case where it says, kids, I'm in the car. We're on our way to school. Kids, I'm in the car already. I'm out the door. No, you're not. You're in the house. Right? The proleptic vision or proleptic language is this, it's so certain to happen, so sure that I speak in the future in the present tense. The proleptic vision 
is one way of describing the vocation of the church in the world. We've quoted this often, but Eugene Peterson called the church to be a colony of heaven in the country of death. So the proleptic vision is that the church now lives out what the kingdom is. We live out now what will be in the future reign of Christ. I love this from Lee Camp's book, Scandalous Witness. He says, the coming kingdom entails a shared abundance and unencumbered generosity. Thus, we practice generosity and hospitality even now in the present. The coming kingdom entails the unlearning of war. Thus, we learn the counsels of peace now. The coming kingdom entails the righting of all wrongs by truth-telling and suffering love. Thus, we tell the truth, practice suffering love, and right wrongs now. Jesus is speaking of the proleptic vision in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, the peacemakers, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who mourn. These are those who will inherit the kingdom of God. This is what God's kingdom is like, and we're called to live it out now. Or consider the Apostle Peter's words to the church. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Here, Peter is calling the churches to presently live out their future reality and hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not just hope, it's present, living, active hope that Peter calls the church into. Now, back when we were teaching through 1 Corinthians 7, we saw how Paul called the church to live out this same proleptic vision. You remember when we talked about marriage and singleness and how these are gifts from God. And Paul says, concerning the present time, all of these things are passing away. And so he wants us to live a certain way. And we talked about this overlap of the ages, that Jesus began the new kingdom age. And Paul calls the church to live out that kingdom kingdom overlap, not the part of this world. He wants us to live in the kingdom now. So the church, this proleptic vision, is to live in the light and reality of the coming kingdom of God in such a way that it transforms all our earthly relationships, stations, or status. Now in these sections, 11 through 14, Paul applies this to women's dress and appearance. He addresses it in the section around the communion meal, and then in chapters 12 through 14 on the use and abuse of the gifts. And in each of these, Paul is calling the church to live out our destiny of love, righteousness, peace, and joy in the kingdom of of God. And I believe that Paul's goal in all of this is the supremacy of love. Let love be the guiding principle in your interactions with one another, as you use the gifts, as we come to the table, as we consider men and women and their different roles. 1 Corinthians 13 is sandwiched in the middle of all of this because this is kind of the apex of the argument. And this is because, paraphrasing paraphrasing N.T. right here, Love is not just the duty of the Christian, but it is the destiny of the Christian. 
And so we are to live out now what we will be. So what does all of this have to do with head coverings, you ask? Great question. So let's talk about that. And let me first point out one very important aspect of this text, which all interpreters should be able to agree upon, but that is often overlooked. Paul assumes without any hesitation or discussion that women, like men, may pray and prophesy. That is, speak to God, prayer, and speak for God, prophecy, in the gathered church. Amen. This plainly means that women can address God on behalf of the assembly and can address the assembly on behalf of God. So no matter what else we conclude from this passage, we must stress the equality of men and women in Messiah Jesus. Amen. I love it. All right, so here's the question. To veil or not to veil? (laughs) And this might be one of the most confusing passages of Paul's letters. And if it's not the most, it's definitely in the top three. And even as I say that, that could sound like, well, do we really even know what we're talking about then? Yes, we do know what Paul is saying. We do know what Paul is teaching, but it does mean that we really don't know a whole lot about the specific issue that he was addressing, specifically because the text doesn't say. And I believe that this text is similar to our last passage about food sold in the marketplace being offered to idols. It's a specific cultural issue to a specific time and place, and Paul brings biblical wisdom and principles to bear upon it. And I believe when this whole section is taken together, along with the greater context of this letter, we see a beautiful and consistent vision that the apostle calls the church into. Here are a few questions, I think, that we should ask when approaching this text. Maybe you want to write them down and think about them later. Number one, is this a passage about husbands and wives or about men and women in general? This is difficult because in Greek, these are the same words that are used, and it really depends upon the context. Then there is the question of headship. What does the word head mean? Does it mean authority? Does it mean source? Is it complementary in contrast to the body? Third question. Is the passage about hierarchical or reciprocal relationships or both? Fourth and final question, is Paul, like in other passages in Corinthians, in dialogue with questions and opinions of the church, or is this Paul's own opinion? We will not answer all of these this morning, but I do believe that these are important to ask of the text. Now, I want to give you the common interpretation of this passage, and then we'll kind of use this as our launching pad. So the common interpretation of this passage is that the Corinthian church had misunderstood Paul's teaching about equality in Christ to mean that there are now no distinctions at all between men and women. And so the women begin to dress like men. They begin putting off, you know, their 
head coverings and their female dress, and they were, you know, kind of androgynous. And so that's what was going on in the church. And so Paul takes us back to the creation order to see that even before the fall, humans were made male and female in the image of God. And it is only as male and female in Messiah that we image the new creation and the kingdom of God. Now, though I agree with the theology of this, Paul makes no mention of this teaching. And then along with this interpretation comes the application that women are to veil as a sign of being under biblical submission. Or women have to veil to show that they actually are women. Is that what the text is saying? And then on top of that, is the fact that Paul says this is the rule or practice in all of the churches. Everywhere. We have no other rule, he says. What does that mean for us, then? And a majority of churches in Western culture who do not observe veils or head coverings. Well, it's quite simple, really. We are being unbiblical. If that is the right interpretation of the text. So I would like us to consider another possible interpretation of the text, but in order to do this, we must take off our Western world lenses through which we see things and put on the lenses of the veiling cultures in the ancient Near East. What do I mean by that? Well, the way Western cultured people with our independent individual preferences. Excuse me. I had a terrible allergy attack last night, and so I had to take Benadryl, and I think I'm still feeling it just a little bit in my tongue. So, <laughs> excuse me. The way Westerners, with our independent individualistic preferences, tend to see this passage is that there are a bunch of women in the Corinthian church who are insubordinate to the order of creation and biblical authority, and that they're using scripture to justify their insubordination, specifically Galatians 3.28, that there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female now in Christ Jesus. So because of this, Paul has to correct the women and put them back in their place by telling them to cover their heads as a sign of their submission, especially in the worship gatherings of the church. So then depending on where you sit, your own upbringing and experience, this might feel and sound very oppressive, like domineering patriarchy. Some see this as an oppressive practice out of common what was common of the day, views of women in those times, and then Paul and others are just children of their time, and so we don't need to listen to this ancient, backward, oppressive way of thinking. That's how some would approach this. Maybe some read it, and we just don't really think about it at all. Maybe because we're a man, and we don't feel like, well, it doesn't really matter to me. For others of you, you might not have a problem with this view at all. The question is, is our modern way of seeing this correct? And I don't believe that it is. So I'm going to make the argument to veil. 
and just suspend your judgment just for a few minutes. <laughs> the way an ancient Near Eastern individual and community would view this is vastly different. Remember, the ancient Near East was and still is a shame and honor culture. And it was also, and still is to some degree, a veiling culture. This means then that the veil was not and is not just a sign of a woman being in submission to authority. It meant she was under protection by husband, father, or family. She belonged somewhere. But it was also a sign of honor. It was a sign of chastity. Kenneth Bailey, he wrote a book called uh, Jesus Through Mediterranean Eyes. He says this, In traditional Middle Eastern society, from the days of the Jewish rabbis to the present, a woman was and is obliged to cover her hair in public. Okay, Kenneth, why? Leela Ahmed, in her discussion on the background of veiling in Islam, says this, the rules on veiling, specifying which women must veil and which could not, were carefully detailed in Assyrian law. The veil served not merely to mark the upper class, but more fundamentally to differentiate between the respectable women and those who were publicly available, sexually available even. That is, the use of the veil classified women according to their sexual activity and signaled to men which women were under male family, father protection, and which were fair game. Now, it's a historical fact that during the Roman Empire, the veiled head was a symbol of modesty and chastity that was expected of a married woman, and that Octavian tried to legislate modesty in the way elite Roman women dressed their hair in public. The Roman matron's dress code, the veil, signified her rank as well as her status and role as a sexually mature woman. On the other hand, an unveiled head signified sexual availability so that a woman, slave, or a freed woman was prohibited from veiling. So I want us to think about all of this. Veils were a signal of honor, chastity, that someone belonged to a father, a family, a husband. It was a sign of protection and belonging. For those who could not veil, it was a sign of lower class, those who belonged to the slave culture, those maybe who had even been freed out of slavery. It was to signify your class and your place in society. And in light of all this, listen to Paul's instruction again. And remember, this is instruction on the gathered worshiping community. Every woman who prays, that is speaking to God on behalf of the congregation, or prophesies, that is speaking to the congregation on behalf of God, with her head uncovered, unveiled, dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. Now, there's evidence that the shaved head was a sign of the temple prostitutes of the day. So Paul seems to be making a connection there, again, with the shame, the dishonor. But listen, Paul wants all the women in the gathered worshiping community to veil. 
This means that Paul wants all women to veil their heads while praying in prophecy, prophesying, even those who, according to Roman law, are not allowed to veil in the culture. Those like female slaves, freed women, prostitutes, or those who came out of prostitution, and those of lower class. Remember what Paul had already implied about the Corinthian community. They come from lowly stock. Not many wise, not many noble. Some had come out of broken sexual practices and lifestyles, like prostitution and temple prostitution. Paul says about all of that, that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I, my question is, is this chapter 11, verses 2 through 16, Paul's practical outliving of 1 Corinthians 6, 11. He wants them to live out, but such were some of you, but now in Christ Jesus. You see, veiling and unveiling had direct social implications of shame and honor, chastity and impurity for the Corinthian church community but Paul is dismissing all of the social categories and distinctions of noble, lower class, chaste, defiled, saying, I want all women in the worshiping community to have this status of honor and chastity. Now, this could be lost on us, but think for a moment with me of Le Miserable. Think of Victor Hugo's character of Jean Valjean and the way he and others in that society were marked for life by their past sins and failures. There is nowhere he can go where he can publicly live out in society because he's been marked. He has to hide. He has to, he's constantly on the run. This is what often happens in shame honor cultures or even in guilt innocent type of cultures. And I would add that we are seeing the return of this kind of thinking and practice in cancel culture. Where can people go to be forgiven? Where can people go to be cleansed and reconciled and healed? Cynthia Westfall in her book, Paul and Gender, says, Paul's support of all women veiling equalized the social relationships in the community. Inasmuch as such veiling was in his control, he secured respect, honor, and sexual purity for women in the church who were denied that status in the culture. Wow. Wow. Paul's desire was that the Corinthian church would be a haven, a refuge from the social hierarchies of shame and honor in the surrounding culture. And as the church lived out this vision of respect, honor, and purity, it would radically stand out as a bastion of a different kingdom, a kingdom of honor, a kingdom of healing, a kingdom of love and a kingdom of grace. Well, you might be thinking, okay, Char, that's all fascinating. 
But clearly Paul is talking about authority here because he speaks of the order of creation and of man or the husband being the head. So what about headship? And I would say it's interesting that you would bring that up. The word head can actually mean many things in the Greek. Even in our passage, we see that. It can mean head in the physical, anatomical sense. It can mean head as a reference to the whole person. It can mean head as the source. Think about like the headwaters. So as in source or source of life. And finally, head can be used as a metaphor for a leader, ruler, or authority. So for argument's sake, let's say in this passage that head means authority or leader. We'll just go with that interpretation for a minute. And I would say first, there is nothing in the creation account that Paul roots this in that implies that the man is the authority over the woman. And I challenge you to go home and to read it again. Rather, what is taught is that male and female are both created in the image of God. And that together they image the one true God. Both are commissioned to fill the earth. Both are commissioned to rule over it. However, the creation account does tell the story about God being the source of life for the man, doesn't it? We're told that God formed man of the dust of the earth and breathed on him the breath of life. We're also told that man is the source of life for the woman because woman was taken out of man from his side as he slept. God formed the woman and brought the woman to the man. Not only that, but in our Corinthian passage, Paul makes a claim of mutual dependence of male and female. He does not argue that the husband has the authority to tell the wife what to wear or anything like that. That's not what Paul's arguing. Instead, he says, in the Lord, meaning for those who belong to Jesus and are a part of the Jesus community, woman is not independent of man nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. So Paul's teaching is that in Jesus, there is to be a community of interdependence and mutuality. I would also add to this, the Bible's view and treatment of women has historically been countercultural to the world's view and treatment of women. Start there in Genesis 1 and 2. Just as I said, man and woman together image the one true God. Male and female are to fill the world with the image of God. Male and female are to rule over the creation in God's stead or for him. But then we come to the law of Moses. And I know sometimes we read the law of Moses and we're like, what in the world? But I want to tell you that compared to the laws of the day, specifically the law of Hammurabi, God's revelation of the treatment of women is so progressive to what you find 
in that day. And I would say it's always forward-looking to what we will see culminate in Messiah. But we don't have just the law of Moses. We even have the judges, Deborah. We have the queens, Esther, Bathsheba. And we could go on and talk about other queens that are highlighted. We have the prophetesses. And I remember one time my dad was talking about how the king, I can't remember who it is, but it's in the days of Jeremiah. The king seeks out not Jeremiah the prophet, but he seeks out the prophetess. And these are some things that we can often miss in the biblical text. Finally, we see this culminating in the Jesus stories in which women were among Jesus' inner circle of disciples and even paid for his needs. This is highlighted, or excuse me, they are highlighted again and again as understanding Jesus' teaching when religious leaders and the 12 disciples don't. There's this beautiful one in uh, March. Uh, I can't remember what chapter of Mark it's in. But you know the story of the Syrophoenician women? Woman, sorry. So in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is telling parables, and he's constantly speaking in parables, and nobody understands. And even the disciples have to go to Jesus and be like, okay, explain it to me like I'm five, right? But Jesus tells a little parable to the Syrophoenician woman about the dogs not being able to eat the children's bread. And she goes right back with a parable of her own and answers, answers Jesus. A little tit for tat there. And Jesus says, woman, great is your faith. Here's the amazing thing. Nobody in the Gospel of Mark gets Jesus' confusing parables except the Syrophoenician woman, the Gentile woman. Mark is doing this on purpose. Not only that, but all the Gospels record that the women were the first witnesses of the resurrection. And remember that according to John's gospel, it was Mary Magdalene who was the first sent one. Apostle is the term that we use often. The first commission sent one with the good news of Jesus' victory over death. She's the one that informs the apostles of Jesus' victory. For this and many more reasons, I believe that Paul's instruction is one of honor, respect, and securing the status of all women in the church. Finally, that's great, Char. Super good. We don't wear head coverings, so this is a little lost on us, right? So what does this mean for this worshiping community at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa? I think it means at least this. We must be careful that we do not take our walking orders, definitions, or values from the culture, especially when it comes to men and women in the roles and giftings that God has given them. You know, there's this issue right now where pastors and theologians and teachers who have been preaching the word of God for many, many years are being accused of liberal ideas. But I want you to understand that there is a wide biblical stream. And you know what? There are times where there are going to be conservative values that dip into that stream, that join it. But the end of that stream is not the same as the theological biblical stream. 
Also, there are going to be times where there are liberal ideas, what we would call progressive liberal, that dip into the biblical stream, like justice to the poor, to the refugee, to the foreigner. These are things we're like, oh, CRT, intersectionality. It's like, or the prophets, the law of Moses, the life of Jesus. We need to be careful that we don't just call these things, these cultural, you know, little like slap stickers. Like, oh, well, you're, then, you're woke. That's what this is. You know what the problem is, I think? I think the problem is that we have a biblically illiterate church. And I don't mean that, I don't mean that we don't read our Bibles, but I mean that sometimes we don't know what the Bible's actually saying. We've forgotten that God is the God of the fatherless, the widow, the poor, and the foreigner. That's how he introduces himself in the prophets again and again and again. We forget that the law of Moses was about securing protection and provision for these people. Think about the gleanings that would happen. You could glean your orchard or your field, but you had to leave it alone. You could not milk it for all it's worth because everything left over was for the poor to provide for them. There is a biblical stream that is full of grace, mercy, righteousness, and justice. And again, there are times where these cultural streams of conservative and progressive will dip into that, but be careful. Not only that you don't follow that stream, but be careful in the way that you are critiquing. Whatever the world might say, whether on the right or left, conservative or progressive, ancient or modern, they may call us woke and progressive. They may call us emergent. All that's been said about me. They may call us conservative, backwards, ancient, and prudish. That's what they called me in my town that I came from. It just depends on where you sit. Remember, they called Jesus a lot of things. But our call is to live out the proleptic vision of the kingdom of God. A kingdom of honor, a kingdom of respect, purity, interdependence, mutuality of both male and female. You know, right now, and I, this might get me in a lot of trouble, but right now there's a lot of talk about like complementarian, egalitarian, just love each other and figure it out. Like in your marriage, like, oh, well that looks like complementarian. Okay, do you love one another? Do you feel loved and supported and cared for by one another? Then there you go. Call it whatever you want. Live out love for one another. And I would say that also applying to Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. Oh, are we egalitarian? Are we complementarian? Are we hard complementarian? Are we soft complementarian? We are a community that wants to love one another and invest in one another in the gifts and callings of one another and see what God will do. That's what we want to be. We want to be a haven of healing and protection to those who have been canceled by the culture, labeled, blacklisted, that they would find a home, a place, a refuge of honor among the people of God. 
See, our gatherings and our fellowship is not defined or focused on who we are even presently. That doesn't define us. Nor is it focused on our past sins and failures, though those are all very real and might have implications. The gathered church is to be a picture and vision of what will be. A kingdom of kings, queens, and priests dedicated to our Savior Jesus Christ. It is supposed to be a vision of a whole new humanity. As I said, the gathered worshiping community should be a haven from the shame, the disrespect, and dishonor of the world. Just like Paul's instruction to the Corinthians to lift these women from their low societal status, we should be a community that seeks to restore the honor and glory that sin has robbed humanity of. A haven from shame and cancel culture because we know the one who can wipe out all our sin and shame, and we are his people. We're people of the promises. Think for a moment just about Ruth. In this story, a widowed foreigner who cried out to a just man, cover me, protect me, and provide for me. God calls us to be a community that would do that, that would cover, that would protect, that would provide for vulnerable women. Think of Tamar, who was raped and defiled and cried out, where can I get rid of my disgrace? The answer is in the community of men and women who have been washed, sanctified, and justified, transformed by the beauty, honor, and glory of Jesus himself, a vision of the coming and already reigning kingdom of God. That's where. I mean, just bring it home. You think about everything that I'm saying. This is the principle that was employed in the Jesus people movement. Those who were considered the shameful, dirty, and defiled dropouts of society found community here at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, and they found Jesus. This place was a haven from the labels, the blacklisting, the dishonor, disrespect, and defilement of the culture. And I believe God can and will do this again. The question is, will we let him? There is this history in the biblical text where people will not get on board with what God is doing, and so God's spirit moves on. Think about what happened to the Jerusalem church and how the focus of the Holy Spirit becomes the church in Antioch in the book of Acts. Why? Because the church in Jerusalem is hung up on law-keeping, Pharisaical law-keeping and the church in Antioch is going forward with a gospel that is for all, with freedom and healing that is for all. The question is, God can do this again. Will we let him? Will we cooperate with this glorious vision or will we miss out on this kingdom witness and opportunity? Where do we start practically, though? That's a grand vision, Char. So, like, how do we do that? And I would say as simply as this, let's start practicing affirmation and encouragement. Let's remind one another of who we are in Messiah Jesus, that we're dearly loved children. We're inheritors of the promises. 
We're destined to be kings and queens in the new creation. You know, a, a culture of goodness is a culture where we build one another up where we bring encouragement to one another. And if we are going to critique one another, it is for the sake of building one another up, not for the sake of exposing and canceling one another. So let's be a contrasting culture to the culture of the world. Let's be a culture of honor and let's begin doing that by our words, by our thoughts. Uh, Two Wednesday nights ago, I was talking about this, but Paul employs this principle often. Remember, he says, church, the problem that's happening in your midst is you're not considering the brother or sister for whom Messiah died. You're just looking at the outside. You're looking at all the problems. You're looking at, you know, all of these things, labels, whatever it might be. And you're not considering that this is an individual for whom Jesus bled and died. Or Peter, husbands, consider your wives, dwell with them with understanding. Remember that they are inheritors of salvation along with you. What's happening there? Husbands are not considering the fact that their wives are also redeemed by Jesus, that they are blood bought by Jesus. And so we need to change the way that we think about one another by seeing one another through the lens of the gospel and then speaking out of that vision to build one another up. And again, I'm not saying that there aren't issues. I'm not saying that there aren't sins, brokenness, areas of healing, but it will come through mutual upbuilding. It will come by pointing to Jesus, the great savior, healer, cleanser, sanctifier, justifier. That's how it comes. And I imagine, this is the vision that I have in my head, and I'm gonna finish with this. If we live out this proleptic vision, when outsiders and unbelievers come into our worship and fellowship gatherings, they will experience what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 14, 25. They will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Or what's another one? God was in this place and I did not know it. Oh, I assumed that you people were the judgy people of the world, the self-righteous. I came into this place and God was in this place and I did not know it. God was in your midst. Be it unto me. Be it unto you. Let's pray that the Lord would do this in us and through this community. And so, Lord, we give ourselves to you. And Lord, we have just our own cultural baggage. Lord, we have our families of origin that we come from. We've got the nurturing of those families. And all of those things are good and fine and we're thankful. But we pray that we would bring all of these things under Jesus Messiah. And first and foremost, Lord, we would want to see both our nature and our nurturing, our families of origin, our cultural practices, values, and mores, to see them lived in submission to Jesus the King, to see them come under the kingdom of God, and so that when things are out of line with your way, with your vision, with your heart, Lord, that we would cast them off,
that we would cut them out, that we would denounce them, that we would repent, and we would confess Jesus is Lord. You are king. And that we would take up your vision, your mantle. Of the kingdom of God. Of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And we would seek to live that out. That that would be our vision. So help us, Lord. Help this community to be a community of affirmation. Help this community to be a community of encouragement. Help us to see one another as those for whom Jesus died. Dearly loved, inheritors of the promises, destined to rule and reign with Christ. We give ourselves to you, Lord. Have mercy. Bless us, Lord, and bring us into all the goodness that you have for this community. Amen.